Welcome back to Talking with Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined as always by Chris Bouguet. How are you doing, Chris? I'm pretty good, Rachel. How about you? I'm doing really well. It has been so cold here in LA. It snowed. It snowed last week. You're kidding me. True right? life. <laughs> it didn't stick, but it snowed. It was snowing in Malibu, and I didn't believe it until all of my family from the East Coast was like, you made national news. It's snowing in LA. <laughs> Meanwhile, out here on the East Coast, it's like snow days. My kids were sledding. They, they made a couple of bucks by shoveling driveways. So <laughs> you can make extra money doing that out there in LA now. You can <laughs> shovel driveways. I can shovel driveways. Side hustle? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of work, I have a work story to tell you. So I you know, recently took a new job as the assistant technology specialist. And that has me interfacing with a whole different crew here in, in my current school district. And one of the people that uh, I work with is a uh, computer guy, just call him that. And he sent me an email and said, hey, Chris, I have an eye gaze question for you. Can you stop by and see me sometimes? So I was like, well, this is weird. Like this, this particular guy doesn't really work with students. He's like a back-end programmer sort of person. And so I was like, I wonder what he's, I wonder what this is all about. So I go up and I talk to him for a few minutes and he basically tells me this story that uh, he is a former veteran and he still does volunteer work over at the veterans hospital. And one of his friends, uh, unfortunately has ALS. And he recently has, was uh, acquired a Toby Dynavox eye gaze system. And he said, okay, so my friend gets this eye gaze system and I don't know anything about it. Uh, my, my other friends that go and visit this friend, they don't know anything about it. And no one's really taught him how to use it. And, I, and he said, you know, who, who does that fall to? Is, is, can you give me some guidance? Is there a speech therapist that should be working with him? Is there some other person that does that? And I realized that, you know, I don't work with adults that much. I was a little, I was speaking out of my, I mean, I don't work with adults at all, really. And uh, when it comes to AAC, I talk to adults who, uh, who use AAC devices. But as far as, you know, providing services to adults, that's just not my wheelhouse. You know, it's just not something I have a lot of experience with. So we chatted a little bit about what I do know about eye gaze, you know, and what I know about the Toby Dynavox system. But as far as the supports around it, I didn't really know. And so I just thought I would ask, you know, do you know, or do, does anyone, any of our listeners know? what the support structure is supposed to look like when someone gets an eye gaze system, no matter whether that's a Toby Dynavox or any other vendor, um, what the support system looks like for adults. Well, it's just a really interesting, you know, a really interesting story because one would assume whoever initiated the process of saying, let's try eye gaze, um, like where'd that person go? And why is that person not doing the training? Yeah, that's, that was my thought. I thought there should be some someone providing some level of care here and that's like coordinating those efforts. I mean, I, I can't imagine it's that different from the school district in that you would have some sort of case manager that is working with it. And like you, like you said, somebody suggested eye gaze, you know? Um, and here's the thing. I, I think this particular person, when I started getting into the weeds, uh, he explained that his friend still had um, motor movements of his hands and uh, was still controlling things, was still using his voice in some regards for speech. But this was all in preparation for what would be coming down the pike, you know, uh, and which I said, you know, my, again, my understanding here is limited. So please take all of this with a grain of salt. But that my experience has been people only use that will we'll go to an eye gaze system when it is sort of the uh, when, when nothing else works. Do you know what I mean? Like you use, uh, I think of it like vision. Like uh, I've talked with a lot of vision teachers over the years and they say, you know, until you're like completely blind, you use every little last part of your residual vision until you've gone blind, you know? Uh, and I picture that the same way. And you know, eye gaze does not have a reputation of being easy to use or, or implement. And I think if I was used to using my hands, I would use those to the last possible minute. If I could use my voice, I would use that to the last possible minute. Even though I knew that, that it might be coming and 
and I should be practicing, it would be like very regimented structured practice sessions. I don't think I would be using it eye gaze until I had to use it. Is, does that sound about right? Yeah. Well, I think it brings up this really interesting point as to you know, with these neurodegenerative disease processes, how can we, how as clinicians can we set up systems down the line? Um, and I think it's, the, the reason it's so hard is because no one, not the individual, nor the family, nor even the therapist sometimes, wants to concede to the idea that they're going to lose skills, right? Like I'm just imagining myself with some type of neurodegenerative disease and I don't want to think, you know, one day I won't be able to use my hands. Um, I I know my family won't want to think that. And so it's just like, it's this really hard balancing act, figuring out, you know, how can we set our our clients up for success long-term anticipating that they might lose some skills. Um, and it's really, it's just really sad to think about. Um, and it's, it's something that I actually have been struggling with in my own practice, um, not with adults, but with um, children that I work with. And it's just, it's a hard sell. It's a hard sell trying to talk to the families about something that's so incredibly delicate. Um, you know, saying one day they might not be able to use their hands. So we need to set up systems in place that, you know, can help them communicate when they have no, you know, mobility anymore. Um, that's just a really tough conversation to have. And I'm just, you know, personally struggling with this. How do I balance, you know, doing what I think is right, knowing that, as I continue to see this, this child, I see them losing skills, you know, every week by week, slowly, but surely they keep regressing, um, which is what we know happens with these progressive disease processes. So I don't know, it's been a struggle and I just like, it's just so delicate and I don't exactly know how to navigate it. You know, uh, Gail Van Tatenhove was at ATIA and uh, we presented during the same block of time. We did this AAC spotlight session and her, she was the kind of the closer. She was the, the fourth person to go. And she did talk about working with adults um, at the end of life. You know, she said, we've laughed in this session and we're going to cry in this session because we're going to talk about how therapists address the, this whole idea that you eventually are going to lose some people that you work with. Um, and she said, she goes, you know, my reputation is I'm the queen of core, you know, core vocabulary all the way. But at the end of life, here's where I'm thinking is if someone like this gentleman, maybe that, that, I'm, that I'm speaking about, you know, again, not knowing his specifics, might I be thinking, and Gail mentions this, she said, I, I'm not using core vocabulary. I'm thinking of whole phrases, mm-hmm. you know, to, to get them through their day, they could maybe have a list of 25, 50 whole phrases that they scan through or they access um, that allows them to communicate their wants and needs uh, and, and say things to their loved ones because they're not necessarily generating uh, novel utterances anymore, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or because it's so laborious to generate a, a novel utterance that it's just so much faster to have a set of phrases, which is, you know, again, something sort of foreign to me, you know, having, having phrases like that. Uh, but I could see where she was coming from because she, she, she said, I've, I've lost a number of people over the last few years. And I, I've really had to start to think about how I'm setting up systems for the end. No, which is a difficult conversation to have. Yeah, it absolutely is. And um, it's it's interesting because when we're working with children, we think, well, we have to teach the foundations, right? We need to teach, you know, individual words as individual units and we can then formulate our thoughts. But um, you kind of turn that on its head when you're thinking about end of life and, um, you know, just helping people communicate, obviously their basic wants and needs, but being able to have those exchanes with their family members. And um, it's, it's less about teaching the skills, right? And it's more about, you know, just quality of life. Um, which is, it's really, it's really hard to, to think through that lens. 
Yeah. It's another uh, aspect of training that I know I don't feel like I got any exposure to or have much experience with, uh, and I feel like it's kind of uh, hard to find, is this sort of uh, caretaker role that a therapist sometimes takes on. You know, a therapist role, but not in a speech and language therapy sort of capacity, but more of a, uh, a social-emotional sort of support and navigating the waters of the financial system. All of that stuff is Give me language. You know, I know language, but I, where do I find and how do I get additional training on being the social uh, emotional support? You know, like I said, I don't even know how to say it clearly. You know, what I mean, what's the right th- way to, to 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 mention that sort of uh, therapy that you'd be giving? You know. Yeah, it actually reminds me in my fluency course in graduate school, I um, there was a component of counseling. And I think that it definitely, when I was you know in that portion of the course, I remember thinking, I need so much more training in this. I feel like this is such a huge component to what we do. And I just remember thinking like this, like we touched on this lightly, but I want to deep dive into this. Um, and it just brings up, you know, uh, some, some questions about it kind of blurs the lines, right? What is our scope of practice? And even, even with the, you know, the parents that I work with, I think there's an additional layer of all of the grief that, you know, a newly diagnosed parent experiences. And um, especially when we're working with kids with complex communication needs, there's this idea of, I have to give up this thought of my child talking, um, which is a lot, I feel like for parents. And I'm constantly trying to remind myself that, you know, I work with kids who are nonverbal. I work with kids using AAC and it's very much commonplace for me. But for a parent who's never had exposure to interacting or interfacing with individuals who use devices to communicate, it's a lot. And I think that we need to be sensitive as clinicians to having parents and helping parents wrap their head around that. Um, so really trying to impress upon the importance of language and communication in ways that, you know, maybe aren't traditional. Um, this actually reminds me of a movie that I just saw. Um, it's called The Silent Child. Have you heard of this or seen it? No, no, no. I haven't heard it. Tell me about it. Oh, it was so good. I actually just watched it over the weekend. Um, it's it's a short. It's it's only like 30 minutes, I think. But it's about a little girl who is deaf. And she has a social worker come and starts teaching her sign language. And at the very end, the, the, the child is finally connecting and communicating with the social worker. And, you know, they're making so much progress. And she's starting to sign on her own. Um, she's, a, she's four years old. And the parents at the last minute decide that they don't want to go the sign language route. Um, they want to focus on, you know, verbal. And they think that, you know, she's in a preschool and no one's, no one will be able to sign to her in preschool. Um, so like we need to abandon sign language. Um, and it was just, I could relate to it so much just thinking through the lens of this is exactly what we do, right? Like I've had so many parents who say like, I hear what you're saying, but we want to focus on verbal speech. Um, you know, I, and, and it's just, it's so hard because as a clinician, I know that I have the tools to, to help children connect and communicate. And, you know, we don't have to wait until verbal, verbal approximations or verbal speech comes to give children a voice to communicate. And it's just so hard when I have those cases and those parents who say like, no, sorry, like we want to, we want to go the verbal route. We want to focus all of our speech therapy efforts on, you know, getting them to talk. Um, It's just such a hard, such a hard conversation. And I try to, I try to have empathy for those parents because because I can't even imagine what it's like to have a child who's not talking. Like I already mentioned, I feel like there's this whole grief component of letting go of those expectations that you have for your child. And at some level, trying to, to think of, you know, what does normal communication look like for a child? Well, it looks like talking. Um, so letting go of that idea, I think is really hard for some families. 
yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be hard for anybody. And and then bringing it back to the end of life, letting go of someone's, I mean, coming to grips with the idea that someone is is going to die and you're going to lose your loved one is, I don't even know what strategies to give people because I haven't been through that enough. I mean, I would imagine that uh, one strategy you do as, as far as a counselor counseling goes would be to just be a good listener, uh, look at the needs that are immediately in front of you and try and address those immediate needs. Um, and then just, like I said, listen to what, uh, what the people are, are saying to you so that you can give them good advice about what you do know, your scope of practice, you know, about how to help someone communicate and when their ability to communicate is becoming less and less. Yeah, and I think the, the thing that I try to impress upon uh, family members and parents, especially if they're very resistant to the idea of AAC, is that, you know, we want to know what's in that that little brain, right? We want to know what's in their inner world. And the only way we can know that sometimes is through technology, um, you know, and, and I always try to caveat, we don't know what's going to happen, right? Like, I don't know that a child's not going to talk, but what I do know is we can help them while they're in the process of learning how to talk, we can help them communicate. And I feel like that's the biggest thing to me is really trying to impress the power of communication. Um, you know, because, and, and I say this to parents, imagine you can't say what you need or say what you want and you're limited because your mouth won't make the movements that it needs to make for you to do so. You're going to get really frustrated. We can alleviate that frustration. Um, we can alleviate the frustration. We can keep teaching language skills as we wait for a child's articulation, um, you know, the, the musculature in their mouth and all these things to develop. Um, we don't have to wait, right? Yeah, you know, it often seems to me like no matter whether we're talking about children or adults, there seems to be this notion that it has to be one way, you know, and I do think there is like one primary way, right? Like we, we all, meaning you and I, Rachel, speak with our mouths, right? But um so we have this primary form of communication, but as I'm sitting here watching you via Zoom, your hands are going a mile a minute. You know what I mean? You just nodded, right? You there. Are, you have multiple ways of of communicating, and I think that is something that we can take home, no matter where you are on the spectrum of the lifespan. Is that everyone is a multimodal communicator? So we eke out every ounce, we squeeze out every ounce of communication from the different modalities. So back to that that story you were saying that that video, uh, the movie. It doesn't have to be one way or another way. You, 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 there is no going the speech route, you know. You can use speech, and we're going to use our communication device, and we're going to use our, uh, our gestures, uh, and we're going to use our voice with all the few words that we know, and it's going to be all of that and more. Sometimes it's going to be pointing to papers, you know, and it's going to be hugs and smiles and kisses and all that good stuff too, and all of that is communication. Absolutely. And I think that I've always adopted a total communication approach, um, which sometimes shocks people. So I have clients come to me and they're like, well, you're the tech specialist. You're the AAC person. And I'm like, yeah, but if a child's gesturing in a way that makes sense to me, like I'm going to support that. If a child makes a, an approximation of a word, I'm going to support that. Um, you know, and, and I think one of the biggest questions I get is say a child says something verbally or an approximation, like, what do we do? Do we have them then say it on the device? And I'm like, no, we accept their verbalization or their approximation, and then we can model on the device without any expectation of having them do anything. Um, that's something that I'm very passionate about is not having children say things more than once in different ways of communicating. We can easily model. Like if a child says something on a device and we're also working on sign language, I can sign after they say something on the device. Um, it, these things go back and forth, but I think the biggest thing is, you know, when you say something, Chris, I don't have you say it in different, you know, modalities. I'm not like, oh, now say it again and sign it to me. Now say it again and type it to me. Everyone would get frustrated if we did that. So let's set the record straight. Let's have kids communicate in one way for the things that they're trying to tell us. And then of course we can support that on the device by just modeling. 
Yeah, you know, I think that would be the same thing with uh, an adult towards the end of life is that, like you mentioned the keyboarding there, you know, type it, you, you wouldn't ask somebody to, to say it and then retype it to you. Well, I think that is another, so often we focus on the verbal communication or having auditory outputs, but if a person can type and use word prediction, uh, if a person uh, would, would rather handwrite it, that's their choice and, and respecting their, their preferences. The Our job is to offer them options so they can see the one that would work best for them uh, and maybe help streamline that in some way, uh, meaning like, like I said, presenting word prediction. Oh, you know how to type. What if we did word prediction on top of that? Would that make it easier for you? That's a, an option we can provide. But ultimately, respecting the, uh, the, their, their individuality and their choice. Absolutely. Well, I'm really excited for our interview today. Um, we're talking with Sarah White, and she actually specializes in adults. Um, so I'm just, I, I'm always excited to hear a perspective um, when it comes to adults, because we oftentimes focus on children and pediatrics, because Chris, that's what you and I do. Well, I wanted to give people this piece of advice, and that is, if you're listening to this right now, and you're a, a school-aged or preschool-aged clinician, and you're thinking, well, this is an adult interview, meh. Maybe I don't need to listen to this. I would I would highly recommend that you do. The idea is here is that the kids that you're working with right now will one day, hopefully, eventually be adults. And so having this long-term vision, this transition of where they're going to is uber important. So don't sell this short if you are a school-age clinician. Be thinking about the long-term repercussions of your therapy and, and beyond just what you're doing in a year-to-year basis. Like, where are these kids going? You know? The other thing I want to remind our dear listeners of is we now have have a course. So if you listen to our podcast, you can earn CEU credits um, by going to the Exceptional Ed website and you can easily listen to our podcast. And then if you need additional CEU hours, you can get them very easily by taking a 10 question quiz. So if you haven't checked it out already, we will link to that in the show notes. Um, And we're really excited about it. We're going to have more CEU courses to come. Um, So definitely check it out if you are in need of continuing ed credits. And now without further ado, we head into our interview with Sarah White. Do you have an idea for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders Podcast and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. Welcome back to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by Sarah White. I'm so excited to have her here. Sarah is a certified speech-language pathologist and brain injury specialist who specializes in assistive technology and AAC. She's co-instructed an AAC course at Vanderbilt University and has led the AAC program in outpatient neuro rehab at Vanderbilt Medical Center. Sarah has presented with multiple organizations on AAC with various diagnoses, including acute care, ALS, and aphasia patients. She currently has a webinar available on speechpathology.com for managing communication deficits when ALS patients. Sarah, I'm so excited to have you here today. Yes, thank you. I'm very excited to be here. So let's just first start off with just introing yourself and how you got to, to doing what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've been practicing about 10 years. Uh, the past five years, been specializing in AAC and assistive technology. I kind of had an interesting start into AAC. I kind of just fell into it. Um, 
I've always worked with like adult neurogenic population, mainly in an outpatient, like a hospital setting. Um, and I, uh, there was kind of a sudden opening to lead the AAC program um, at my facility. And so I kind of just said, all right, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to dive in. I felt like I kind of had a good handle on AAC and technology already, um, which I quickly found out, no, I really did not. <laughs> I can <laughs> it relate. Was, um, <laughs> it, it was actually pretty daunting and overwhelming, especially when I got into the thick of like speech generating devices and insurance parameters and all the different apps that are out there and everything. So I kind of just had to spend my first year really doing a lot of self-study and training and going to conferences and doing webinars and making connections within the community so I could uh, become what I kind of feel like uh, has led to me being an expert in the field. And, and I'm still learning. So <laughs> certainly um, you don't always know everything. It's so true. And I think especially in our field, it's like there's, you know, people who specialize in, in this, but you can't possibly know it all. You can't possibly know every app and every, you know, framework and all of these things. So it's it's always a, a learning process. And I think that the best clinicians in the AAC are the ones who are eager to always learn and curious to figure out what they don't know. Um, and I think that's what's so cool about our field is that we have these cases and we're like, well, I don't know what to do with this case. Um, but it inspires us to, to learn and to, you know, seek out webinars and all these great resources that there are online um, to figure it out, right? Absolutely. I completely agree. And I think for me, I just kind of jumped into the AAC world and um, it was good for me to kind of flounder a little bit because I realized, all right, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to do a little bit of work here. And there's sometimes I think there's this big gap in AAC of you're either a novice or an expert and it doesn't have to be like that, right? You know, you can say, I'm just going to start at the point where I am and, and continue to learn. Yeah. And I think that's a, a barrier for a lot of clinicians is they feel like, oh, I don't know it all. So I don't know enough. And I think that, you know, we, like you said, it, it's just like these opposite ends of the spectrum and we can be in the middle and be totally okay with it. Um, and, and as long as you're very clear about the things that you know and the things that you don't know and you're, you're willing to learn, I feel like that's the most important thing. Absolutely. I, I agree completely. I always say to my graduate students, you know, you're not going to be able to say, I don't do AAC or I'm not an AAC expert because it's within our scope of practice. And clinically, we need to be able to meet these patients' needs um, with AAC. And if we can't, then know where to go to get the resources or brainstorm. Or like you said, say, I'm not 100% sure about this. How can we collaborate? So absolutely. It's, it's okay to not know and it's okay to kind of learn as you go, right? Yeah. So let's deep dive a little bit. I'm so excited to have you on because a lot of this podcast we spend talking about pediatric populations because that's what Chris and Lucas and I mostly focus on. Um, so let's talk about adults. And I guess let's yeah. start with the differences between, you know, AAC implementation for adults versus pediatric populations. Right. So, I mean, I think when we're looking at a pediatric population, we're looking at a lot of um, language habilitation, right? So you're teaching language for the first time. You're teaching these kids, you know, how to put sentence structure together and vocabulary. And you guys talk about a lot of four words versus fringe words. And that's kind of the, the meat of pediatric AAC implementation, right? But with adults, you uh, are kind of looking at the opposite end of the spectrum. You know, adults, they already have relatively intact language or cognitive skills where they've learned language already. They don't need to learn the structure of language. They don't need to learn new vocabulary. You know, we are rehabilitating them. So in, in a sense of, you know, if they've maybe had a brain injury or a stroke or something, we might be rehabilitating them and using alternative communication to to retrain them with cognitive and linguistic skills. Um, or if we're looking more at 
an adult that maybe has like a neurodegenerative disease, such as like an ALS or a Parkinson's or something like that, they might have intact language skills and speech skills, but they might be losing them because of that neurodegenerative disease. And so how do we capitalize on the skills they have and then plan for the future to bring in some alternative communication for them? So that's kind of the big difference when I think about it is pediatric, you're habilitating, you're teaching language for the first time versus adults, you might be rehabbing their language or maintaining their speech and language for them. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I think about often, um, and this comes up for me when I'm working with uh, teenagers and right now I have a kiddo who's 22 um, Mm -hmm. and I'm doing AAC and it just, it's even more important to make sure the things that you're doing are really functional. Obviously it's really important to make things functional in general for all populations that you work with, but especially when you're working, you know, with adolescents, adults, um, it's just so important that you're figuring out ways to integrate these practices and this communication into the activities and routines that are actually going to be happening in their real life. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you bring up a great point. Functionality is the number one thing that we look at. So, you know, we have to say, all right, where, where are you, where are you communicating? What environments with what people, you know, uh, in different places in different times and kind of say, how can we take that and bring your alternative communication to actually functionally practice this in these different settings? Because, you know, we talk, you know, we talk about this all the time in my four little treatment walls, you know, we can practice it and you can do great, you know, using your alternative communication, but what about going to Starbucks and ordering a coffee, you know, can you actually functionally use it there? So it is really important to, um, to look at those realistic situations and see what we can do with them. And speaking uh, to that point, um, what, what is the role of caregiver training when you're working with AAC with adults? Absolutely. That caregivers play a huge role in this because, you know, what happens is just, just like you're probably looking at um, when you have a pediatric patient, you know, you might have a parent that is in tune with their communication needs. It's the same with adults. So if you have a caregiver that's with them, they're so in tune with their communication needs. And so they don't always give them the opportunity to communicate. They jump in and they say, I know what they're saying. Oh, they want this, or I know their personality. And so number one, you have to train the caregivers, hey, you've got to give them the opportunity to communicate. But then number two, what can you do to help facilitate that communication instead of just talking for them or communicating for them? Because that happens so often, right? And so, um, you know, we're kind of in between of like, you know, I need you to help facilitate this communication. Here are the tips and strategies that you can do to help facilitate this. Um, but I'll then also give them the opportunity because, you know, these individuals want to communicate. They've already been doing it potentially for the last 20, 30, 40 years before maybe they're having some communication deficits. And so that is a big piece of things is that caregiver training. And I think too, you have to think about that, that loss of independence, right? So, you know, it's, it's bad enough that a lot of these patients, they lose their independence to take care of themselves, to feed themselves, all of these things that we take for granted. But on top of it, you know, we, we need to give them the space to still at whatever capacity they can to communicate independently, right? Um, not always anticipating what a caregiver thinks that, you know, that individual might want to say, um, but really giving them the space to have that independence. Yes, absolutely. And that, you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head there with the independence. That's really tough for people. You know, they've lost the ability to communicate and a barrier that we kind of face with this population is that they don't want to use alternative communication because they say, no, I've communicated with speech my entire life, or this is how I've always done it. There's resistance to using communication. And so I really try to kind of say, look, this might put some of that control back in your hands where, you know, especially if it's a degenerative disease, I might say you're struggling to communicate and it's, you're losing your independence and using some of these alternative methods can help empower you and give you more control where you are able to functionally communicate with other individuals and you don't have to rely on other people. So it's very, it's difficult. Oh, certainly. 
And that kind of brings up a, a point that's been really burning in my brain lately. Um, I have been working with um, some children with neurodegenerative disease processes that are happening. And like you said, it's like, it's so hard getting past this idea that you will lose skills, right? A loved one of yours will lose skills. Um, and I think that that's like such a barrier because, you know, we have to accept that fact before we can, um, you know, plan ahead for the the future. Um, and so how do you, how do you handle conversations like that delicately? Cause it feels like, um, you know, I'm sure there's a ton of resistance because there's a, a huge element of grief associated. Yeah. And I think the hard part is too, is that you, you know, we might be losing communication skills, but it can be unknown as well too. Right. I mean, we, we don't know how fast a disease will progress. We don't know what it's going to look like. Is it going to be communication skills? Is it going to be motor skills? And so I kind of just say, we don't know, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what skills you're going to lose or when you're going to lose them. But we know the research shows us that, you know, with whatever disease process this is, we know that you will continue to have more difficulty in the future. You know, research shows us that as a fact. And so what can we do to help you be more in control of this loss of skills, you know? And so if we can do things like give you a communication system and, and put it in your tool belt or uh, save your voice via voice banking or message banking, and you've got that voice in your back pocket, you might not need it today. You might not need it tomorrow. I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell the future. But I want you to know that if in six months, in a year from now, if you're having more difficulty communicating or accessing or whatever it might be, you've got these tools and you've got these skills, you know, you need to feel like you're in control of this. And so that's kind of how I approach things. You know, I use the term, my job is to make sure that you don't get into a communication crisis. Mm, I like that. I don't want you to not be able to communicate your message and you have no other alternative means. That's my job. I don't want you to be in a crisis mode. So let's get together. Let's get some tools, some resources, put them in your back pocket. So you are never in that crisis mode. You will know what and how to use things, even though you might not need them right now, you'll know what to use and how to use them when you do. I love that. And I, I think that, um, that the wording of that is so powerful communication crisis, because that's essentially, that's what it is in a lot of ways. Um, mm -hmm. you know, if we lose the ability to communicate clearly, you know, nobody knows what we need and it feels like that's, I feel like a lot of times people are living one day at a time when they have these types of disease um, and, and, and disorders. And you have to paint the picture of down the line because we mm -hmm. need to do what we can do now so that down the line, we're not thinking, oh, well, we should have done this or we could have done this. Um, so I think it's so important. Are there specific things that you start doing? Is it just, you know, getting a, a patient used to using a device and like what kinds of specific tasks are you doing to prepare them for, you know, down the line? Sure. Well, a lot of times, you know, I will do, I, I kind of alluded to before, I'll do some voice and message banking with the patient, which there are many kind of voice banking options out there and websites that patients can use. Um, I have myself voice banked using Model Talker. And so a lot of times I'll show that to a patient and kind of show how it interfaces with an app on the iPad and say, this is a way you can kind of preserve your voice for if you need it down the line, it can interface with devices. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of getting out different, maybe low-tech and high-tech devices, just introducing them to people and really putting a communication system in their hands, even if they don't need it right now, saying, 
I want you to, I want you to use, you know, customize this. I want you to practice with it. I want you to record your voice and you know, whatever it is and kind of just play around with it until you get comfortable using it. And you don't have to be an expert in using it, but you need to know just a little bit about the system. And so it's not so daunting to them when they do need it. Right. And so this helps them just have more acceptance. I think of, I know how to use this system. I don't need it right now, but Oh, down the line, if I do need it. So yeah, people walk away and I, they, they need to have a system in their hands. Um, even if that means they're not using it for another six months or a year or whatever that might look like. Absolutely. Um, and I love just the the framing of that, you know, down the line, um, because I think that it doesn't mean you have to accept this fate right now, um, but we need right. to do the, necess- the necessary steps to, you know, prepare you for what's going to happen in the future. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, the difference between, we're talking a lot about degenerative, you know, let's talk a little bit about aphasia, because um, I know that's some of the work mm-hmm. that you do. How is it different? So, um, you know, with an aphasia patient, you're, you know, you're seeing them, you're going to do your language assessment and kind of see where they're at. And then you're going to, you know, you might look at a couple of different AAC systems as far as, you know, what's the language that they need. Can they do text? Can they do pictures? Um, You're really meeting the patient where they are at right now. And then over time, the language system could get a little bit more complex, right? Because the the patient with aphasia, the trajectory is that they're going to get better, right? From a linguistic standpoint. And so you might be looking at um, kind of the framework that you're looking at it is that we're going to kind of maybe start with the simplest version that we can right now to meet with their needs. And then as we go along, we might increase the complexity of things. Um, and it's the same thing. I mean, you're, you're also kind of doing that traditional language therapy with an aphasia patient, right? I mean, it's not just an AAC system. You're trying to remediate and, you know, rehabilitate their language, um, but then also use the AAC system for functional communication and to help facilitate their language, right? I mean, that's the gap we were talking about before. And these patients, it's really tough for them. They just want to talk. They don't necessarily want to use um, alternative communication. And so um, bridging that gap to using the system will help you to regain. But you're doing a lot of, I think, more retraining just with language in general with an aphasia patient. And there's a lot out there as far as what types of AAC works best for aphasia. There's a lot of research about visual scene display um, type apps and devices that can be really good with this patient population, gives them a lot of context for their language. Um, Lots of different types of symbols, pictures that we need to use with aphasia patients. So it certainly is a, a little bit different because your end goal is to get them to their highest level of language and then maybe come up with an AAC system that might be more long-term for them. And that, and that could take many sessions, right? And I mean, mm-hmm. I think when you guys talk about this all the time with pediatrics, you know, it's not like they come into your office and you're like, oh, I got a language system for them, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I wish, you know, right? <laughs> right, I wish. And so especially with, a, with an individual with aphasia, it's going to take multiple treatment sessions with them and, and to kind of see where they progress and say, okay, I think this system will work best for you. And then maybe that might change in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And so you're constantly, you know, revamping their system. Um, and then you might get to a point where they get kind of in a they're kind of hitting a more chronic aphasia state where they might sit with an, a communication system for a while. You know, that also could change in the future as well. How are you we utilizing technology for the loss of skill, right? Like, because I feel like okay. that's where technology can really, I mean, obviously with aphasia patients, it's important too. Um, but what kinds of like, and, and like getting into like specifics, like when, you know, are you, are you thinking long-term eye tracking, right? Or like eye gaze and like what specific populations, you know, are you thinking for those types of systems and you know what I mean? Like how can we use technology? Cause now we have, I mean, amazing innovative technology that can help um, do things that we never even thought were possible for these patients who have just limited range of motion and things like that. 
Yes. Yeah, so I think that with, um, if you're looking at a patient with a neurodegenerative diagnosis, then you have to be looking at not only loss of skills with speech and communication, but also that motoric loss of skills. So loss of use of their upper extremities, right? So they're not going to be able to access things. They're going to need an alternative way to access. So um, I might, you know, if I get a patient um, early enough that has um, that has the ability to access an iPad app, that's what I'm going to go with first. Because we talked about this earlier, function is really important with these patients. So I certainly might talk about alternative access and I might talk about um, use of eye gaze, especially with um, a condition such as like an ALS patient or you know somewhere where we know that it's going to be motor neuron death essentially and they're going to need alternative access in the end but I want to meet them where they're at right now and so I want to say let's look at this iPad app can we you know can we start using it can we functionally communicate right now in the settings that you're in and then we also need to just maybe bring out an eye gaze device and take a look at it and jump on it and see how it works and um, this is something that you might need down the road and if we've gone over and we come up with the system for them on an iPad app, I'll say, you know, you need to use this. And when you feel like this communication system isn't working for you anymore, like you, then you need to come back and see me and we need to look at some, maybe some alternative access things such as eye tracking or a head mouse or mm -hmm. something like that. Um, I don't, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't do a lot of switches with this population, mm -hmm. uh, just because the research shows us that they're going to lose all their upper extremity access. And so I tend to go straight towards, you know, like a head mouse or eye gaze, because that's what they're going to need in the long run. And they can't continue to be accurate and consistent using a switch across time and environments with fatigue and all the other things that come in. So I'm really interested in figuring out how you are utilizing both low tech and high tech because a lot of times, um, you know, in, with pediatrics, we're we're kind of doing a combination of of, of both things. Um, so what ways are you kind of differentiating and figuring out? Oh, this makes more sense to do low tech. This, you know, makes more sense to to do something more high tech. Yeah, absolutely. And I think with adults, it's a little bit of the same answer. You're doing a combination of things. You are, um, I, I think I try to say, okay, I want, I want a patient to leave my treatment room having some type of low tech system. And then if applicable, also a high tech system, because um, you never know with technology, what can happen. And so I always want to have a backup system for them in a low tech way. So when I'm looking at low tech systems, I might be doing um, things like uh, you know, kind of like static board maker boards or um, using alphabet boards or even just a simple writing um, technique for them if they, if they can access with their upper extremities, um, if we're talking about maybe a neurodegenerative disease. Um, and then uh, I also, there are also some really great alternative access low-tech eye gaze boards out there that, that you can kind of do some DIY, um, making your own, printing them offline. Um, and so it kind of sounds scary to have a low-tech eye gaze board, but it's a really great backup if your dedicated device, you know, isn't, is acting up and you need to communicate some basic needs. So those are some of the low-tech systems uh, I, I might use with the patient. And like I said, I always want them to have that low-tech system as a backup, even if they've got a dedicated device or an iPad app or something, or share that with them. And then as far as high tech goes, I'm, I'm kind of maybe doing a combination or saying to myself, okay, do they need an iPad app? Do they need a dedicated device? Um, are they open to using that? I mean, I think when you, um, when you have an adult population, you have kind of an older population sometimes and they're not technology savvy and they, they don't really want to learn technology and that's okay. Um, I think it's, can be hard for us as SLPs because we want to just dive in. Oh, this is a great app you can use. It's going to solve all your communication problems. 
but the patient, even if they can get on and use it, they're not going to functionally use it in their, in real life situations. So you have to kind of back up and say, all right, even though I want them to use this app, I'm going to have to go a little bit lower tech, right? So um, that's something that I kind of look at with the high tech. Um, when it comes to iPad versus dedicated device, typically for the neurodegenerative population, I do not go dedicated device unless they need alternative access. Okay. So do they need, you know, do they need to use eye gaze because they cannot use their upper extremities anymore to access an iPad? And the, re the reason that I do this, Rachel, is because they have to be able to functionally use it in their environment. And if I get them this brand spanking new, beautiful, dedicated device with eye gaze, but they don't need it yet and they can use their, you know, they can access using their upper extremities on an iPad app that's what they're going to be using out in the community, right? They're not going to be bringing along this big dedicated device. And then it just kind of, kind of ends up sitting in their closet and they're not getting use out of it, right? Plus there's kind of insurance things you have to think about and insurance isn't going to cover it, isn't going to cover the funding of a dedicated device unless I can justify that they need it, right? So right. I typically start on an app that will meet their communication needs until I feel like they need either alternative access or environmental control, which environmental control is being able to, you know, go through the communication device to access things in your environment, turn on and off your lights, turn on your fan, open doors, you know, all that good stuff. So that's kind of my parameters for choosing a dedicated device. Well, and it seems like one of the roadblocks is that, you know, oftentimes with dedicated devices, we're relying on insurance and insurance, you know, isn't going to reimburse a dedicated device for, you know, skills that a you know patient might lose down the line, right? So it makes our job really challenging because we know that the regression of skills is happening. Um, you know, how can we prepare um, our clients for that inevitability, especially knowing that, you know, it's already hard enough trying to get insurance companies to pay for things. Right. Yeah, I think just introduction, early intervention is is the ticket there. You know, showing them a device, saying you might not need it right now, going back to I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know if and when you're going to need this, but let's check it out. Um, and just kind of trying to decrease the fear that patients have of, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to get on this eye gaze device. I'm not going to be able to communicate by just showing it to them, having early intervention, helping them just accept the idea of using a dedicated device or alternative access for their communication can go a really long way. So when the time comes, then they come back to me and they say, oh, you know that eye gaze device that I've seen a couple of times? I think I need to go ahead and do it. You know, they're not, they're not in that crisis mode in their head of, oh my gosh, you know, I don't know what to do now. Oh, now I'm being introduced to eye gaze. Oh, this is incredibly overwhelming. Right. So yeah, I think that that's a really good strategy is just early exposure. I'm not saying like, this is what you need right now, but at least when you pull it out and they do need it, it's like, okay, I've had some experience interfacing with this. Um, it doesn't seem quite as daunting now because I've already been exposed to it before. Exactly. Yes. So I always ask all of the people that we have on this podcast, if you had a billboard that every SLP could see, <laughs> what would your billboard say? Oh, that's a good one. I think it would say, well, I, I kind of almost have two things and it's things that we have talked about a little bit here on the, on the podcast. It's number one, don't be afraid to jump into AAC, right? I, I mean, I like that one. <laughs> just go for it and you don't have to be the expert and just kind of learn as you go and don't be afraid to not know everything about AAC and, and, and you're not going to, and don't get hung up on 
oh, what's that app that you use? Or what's the best this? Or what's the best communication system for this? Because you're not going to have an answer to that. And everybody, every patient is an individual and you just have to troubleshoot it as you go. So I think that's kind of the, the general one. And then as far as working with the adult population and specifically for neurodegenerative and pediatric neurodegenerative, it is that early intervention and early exposure. So I think so many times patients don't get to you until they're close to that communication crisis. Yes. And then you're backpedaling and you, you can't catch up on your time, you know? And so you're, you're just constantly trying to make up on all this lost time that you had with these patients. And if you can just get to them before they hit that communication crisis, you're going to have a lot better patient outcomes and a lot better patient acceptance and readiness. Absolutely. And I have already said this. I love communication crisis. I feel like it words it perfectly. Um, and it's so true. And we don't want to get to that point. We don't want to get to a point where it's a crisis, right? We want to make sure that we're preparing all of the clients that we work with. Um, so I just, I love both of those billboards. So thank you so much for, for sharing your insight. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that, you know, you think is important to note about um, adults or AAC in general? I think you, we've covered everything pretty well. Well, I'm so excited. And Sarah, you actually shared with me some resources that you've developed um, for, for assessment for, is it specific to ALS? It is specific to ALS, yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited actually. So we're gonna share those resources of Sarah's on um, our Facebook group. So if you haven't joined our Facebook group, please search Talking With Tech um, and they will be in the file section um, after this episode airs. And Sarah, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your wisdom. I am always interested in hearing perspective about adults um, because I we, we're definitely pediatric heavy on this podcast um, just because that's what Chris and I know. But I think it's really important, you know, the children, AAC users that we work with right now, they will eventually become adult AAC users. And so we really need to make sure that we're, we're hearing different perspectives and um, Absolutely. We're, we're thinking through, you know, different lenses um, when we're thinking about treatment. And there's a lot of overlap, right? I could relate to so many of the things that you were saying um, on this podcast. So I'm just really excited that you were able to come on and share your expertise with us. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. I'm really excited about this podcast pediatric users become adult users, right? So important guys are working on training with uh, language and building on their language skills. Um, you know, then when they get to adults, we have to think, how can we use those language skills in functional environments so they can communicate with multiple partners across multiple environments at different time spans? Exactly. Exactly. For Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Madel, joined by Sarah White. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on. Um, and we will talk to you guys next week. You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.